Some of you may be familiar with an old story that was turned into a movie and certainly something that's a, it's quite an interesting tale of, of Nicky Cruz, the switchblade of the cross, you know, the, the story. One of the most pivotal moments of that story is a picture of, of, of the moment of decision in the life of, of the, the main character of the story. He's threatening the minister and the preacher, the evangelist, with, with death. He's holding, he's holding a knife and he's, and he's threatening him and he says, you know, if you talk to me about Jesus one more time, I'll cut you. I'll cut you. And he gives a number, like you have called at the moment, a number of small pieces. And the minister looks right back at him and says, and if you did, every single piece would say Jesus loves you. And there's this moment of transformation that starts to take hold in Nicky Cruz's life. And it, and it tells a story that it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or what you're currently entangled in with, that, that God, he can reach in and he can change your life. But we're going to see the story this morning in Scripture where, where Saul begins his, his faith journey where he goes from being just who everybody knew him to be to being something else. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we'll look at verses 1 through 9 today. I know that I probably only have 1 through 8 in the slides, but 9 is brief and I can cover it without it being When you get to Acts chapter 9, verse number 1, if you would stand in honor of God's word. Acts chapter 9, verse number 1 reads this way. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and heard a voice saying to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, bearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that as we come to Scripture, we are reminded that you are in the business of transforming us from what we are, from what we have been, from everything that, that we think we believe and know to something that sees you and invests wholeheartedly in you, that that's your business, that you are here to change our lives. I pray, Lord, that that would be our business too, to be changed and to see lives changed. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe see you. You see this picture, we've been kind of unfolding some high points in the book of Acts, and there's plenty more that I could share with you, but just really focusing on a, a, a few snapshots. Acts chapter 1, you hear the, the great picture of that you're going to be witnesses, and that's what he tells his apostles. And he tells them where they're going to go do it. So he tells them what they're going to do and where they're going to go do it. And then when we get to Acts chapter 8, we see that they're still in Jerusalem, but God is allowing a little bit of persecution to come into the church to scatter them out. And all of a sudden, 
they start to fulfill this opportunity to be elsewhere, to be in the places where he told them they'll be. And we see this picture in, in chapter 8 of this man named Saul who is creating havoc in the church, it says. There's a, a, a transition in life, though, that begins to take hold in chapter 9 where you see the same Saul. And it says that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself that when I came to church this morning, I, I hope that when I got here that the people that are assembled here are not breathing threats and murder against us. Amen? But when you read the Bible, you begin to realize that it might be all right if people who were hostile towards us were here. In fact, it's exactly what God is doing in the lives of the hearts of people around us. He's taking people that are absolutely opposed to this and he's turning them into people that need to be in favor of this. And when I say this, I'm not just talking about us getting together. I'm talking about us being completely invested in Jesus. And that's what he does. Well, point number one in your bulletin says just because you started out one way doesn't mean you have to stay that way. And I want you to look right at your neighbor and some of you know the people that are sitting close to you enough to say you don't have to stay the same. And some of you are thinking, man, I wish you wouldn't stay the same, right? Some of you have your, your, your spouse here, and you're like, man, I wish they'd change with this thing or that thing, you know? I know that when my wife and me talk, I think there's a great many things that she would change if she could change me. And I know that it's true for you guys, too, in your houses, don't you? I like you're innocent here, right? If, if you're not the one thinking that, man, I wish they would change, you're probably the one that needs to be changed, just saying. Well, that being said, we see this picture that we start out sometimes with this disposition that I know a great many stories and, and some of those fantastic pieces that are written about that are captured that we embrace as these celebration stories are people that were dead set against this story. But then the longer they invested in studying it or understanding it, the more they saw the reality of it and the more it took hold in their life and, and like a tree planted by living waters, it grows and it becomes strong and that faith life in them is born and as a result, they are changed forever. And we're going to see Saul become engaged with the opportunity to be something completely different. And if this isn't how you began, and then I, I, I want to have a hard conversation because I, I, I'm not questioning your salvation, not in any way, shape, or form, but I will tell you, there were dramatic, life-changing things that happened to me when I come to Jesus. And if you are exactly who you were before you met Jesus now, you either started out real, real young, or you might be deceiving yourself. Because this book calls for change. If you practice what you practiced before you knew Jesus, and it was sinful then, it's sinful now, by the way. It was not okay for Saul when he was done meeting Jesus and being life-changed for him to breathe threats and murder against the disciples. I want you to know that when we come to the scripture, we are challenged to be changed forever and forever. And, and as a result, we see this. Well, we, we read on in the scripture where it says that he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. He's going to the high court. He's going to the high appeal in the religious places, and he's asking them for authority. Now, understand. Understand something. He finds himself to be very religious. He finds himself to be in a, in a hierarchy or a structure that has authority over the groups of people around him. And he thinks if he climbs the ladder and he goes and talks to the high priest, 
that he can have permission to go and do the thing that he feels compelled to do. His deep conviction is to run down the people that oppose Judaism, that, that follow Christ in the midst of their, their synagogues. And he says, let me go. Let me go into those houses of worship, and if I find men or women there that are following Jesus, I want to gather them up and drag them so that they can be tried. And he asked for permission to go do this. Now, I want you to stop and just pause for just a moment, and I want you to consider his contribution to the New Testament. His contribution to the New Testament is profound. Because verse for verse, he's, he's only rivaled by one other author when it comes to things that are included in Scripture for the amount of text that is written in the New Testament. All of the letters that he wrote, he's one of the most prolific writers concerning New Testament Scripture. How do you go from being a guy who hates us and wants to kill us to be the guy that's our, our poster child for great big cheerleader for in favor of it? Because some of you are here today. And you are here because it makes somebody else happy, but not because you want to be here. And somebody's watching this online saying, I just want to just listen to what's said so I can pick it apart and prove how wrong it is. And that's exactly what a number of people throughout history have set out to do. I'm always interested if you read books like More Than a Carpenter, you find a guy that was set out to destroy it. And the more he looked into it, the more he became convinced it was real. Well, he goes and gets his letters. And he uses this descriptor to describe people who follow Jesus. They, the word Christian is only used, you know, very, very limited in the Bible, but we embrace it so thoroughly. But literally, when he was talking about them, he says, so that if you found any who were of the way. And that's what the sermon title this morning is about, that he's looking for people that are of the way. Now, I love this because Jesus described himself as being the way. And if we are of the way, then we are of Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. And that's how we're going to come to the Father is through Jesus. Amen? We see this picture and he says, I want to find anybody who's following Jesus. And they're simply described as being of the way. Wouldn't it be something if when people describe the people of our church and the people of your household and the people of your faith community as being of a different way that just is completely defined by what the Bible says and not by what culture tells us? Wouldn't it be interesting if all of Christianity was defined this way? This is whether men or women, and he wants to bring them back down to Jerusalem. This guy goes from being this guy to being one of those prolific writers in the New Testament. Verse number three. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, you're talking to a guy here who is completely 100% opposed to Jesus. And all of a sudden, something spiritual starts to set in and starts to take hold of the moment. And clear, clearly, in, in point number two, if you're following along your outline, is that Jesus can reach out to us no matter where we are. He is in the process of hunting Christians. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, and now we're going to reach out. Now, this is a really a great dynamic moment for you and for me, and I'm going to tell you why. Because if Jesus is willing to reach into Saul's life when he's in the midst of hunting Christians, then you are not outside of his reach and outside of his interest. He's not waiting for you to become better than you currently are in order to reach out to you. Because if that were the case, then some of us would be in real trouble, wouldn't we? I want you to know that this is a powerful moment in Scripture because he's looking in and he's saying, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, I'm going to reach out. And when I do, Nothing will ever be the same. 
We see it unfold here, this, this blinding light. Verse number four. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I think that if you, if you are in tune with, with what's happening in the scripture here, that you, you hear this, this cerebral moment where you begin to dissect every single thing that you thought, every single thing that you've done, every single thing that you are. And you, you, you have to identify with Saul here in this moment where you're like, and the Lord knows. He knows what's going on in my life. And he knows what I'm thinking about. And he knows my intentions. He sees my actions. And he wants to know why we're doing things that oppose him. Now this is a, a creator God. This is a, a savior Jesus that ought to make you just a little uncomfortable. I'll, I'll never forget it, and I, I won't say their names, but I, I was just calling to ask some guys that I knew that were pretty handy at some point when I was in a church years and years and years ago, and I picked the phone up, and I dialed the number, and I reached these guys in the middle of a field. Apparently, they have been having a hard time digging a hole, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when you dig holes in parts of this world, there are rocks and all kinds of things in there, so you do pretty good for a moment or two, and then you do pretty bad for a long time. And apparently they were talking to this hole pretty vigorously, him and the two guys that worked for him. And when I say talking, they were using adult language. And the guy picked the phone up, and he answers, and I start talking to him, and we have just a simple, small dialogue. It's reported to me at church on Sunday that one of the other guys came back and said, you know, it messed the whole day up. And I said, what do you mean it messed the whole day up? Because he hung the phone up and he says, do you think Brother Ben knows that we're talking with adult language to this hole? I assure you, I did not know. But Jesus knows. And he sees it. And maybe, maybe he just wanted me to remind those guys that maybe, maybe a little conviction is a healthy thing in the midst of the moment. And it's just this powerful moment. Why are you persecuting me? Direct opposition. Now, I want you to, to think on this word with me for just a second, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but I really want you to feel it. The word persecution, oftentimes in church life, is identified with any little bit of struggling we have. Now, you might have troubles, and troubles are talked about in Scripture, and it's okay to, to take your burdens and your troubles to God. But when we talk about persecution, we're talking about direct opposition because of one's faith. We're not talking about trouble like flat tire or common cold or even major illness. We're talking about persecution like, no, you got this because you follow Jesus different, okay? And so, uh, just as a church, and one of my pet peeves is, is that people will say, I love you all, you're wrong. And I'm not going to correct you typically, but I feel like I'm being so persecuted. I'm like, hey, what happened? And I'm expecting some story about some boss that like, gave you extra overtime because, because you were talking to someone about Jesus. And I'd be like, well, it seems kind of like some persecution. But then they're like, I just can't house train my dog. And I'm like, <laughs> Probably not persecution. Just saying. Why am I so persecuted? Saul was a bad dude. He was persecuting the church, and Jesus is leaning in and saying, Why are you persecuting me? And I want you to hear it. Because when we do things that, that, that as followers of Jesus, that directly oppose what he would ask us to do, that's a bad deal. Well, verse 5, we, we begin to see this thing. Where now Saul gets to respond. 
And he said, who are you, Lord? Question. I mean, right about now, you expect Jesus to thunder from on high. And be like, I'm the one that you're running down and that you're chasing all my people and that you're imprisoning people and that you're trying to see them killed. But he doesn't do that. He's so beautifully subtle in this. We want justice and we oftentimes give people what for because we feel like we're entitled to a sense of justice. But he just simply says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then he says something fantastic. You know, it's amazing to me how, how a person can read a story numerous times in their life and then they see something they've never seen before. And, you know, so you get to a part like this and it's like, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard. And it's not a question, it's a statement. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is like, well, first of all, Brother Ben, I don't know what a goad is. <laughs> well, I can boil it down for cattle people. You ever used a hot shot? Or a stick to prod an animal? It's like that. And Jesus is like, I'm the shepherd. I prod you along, and you're fighting me. Well, who wins when they got the hot shot in their hand, typically? I know, I know, it's cruelty to animals. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just describing what it is. If we have the difference of opinion about whether or not you should or shouldn't electrify your animal, for the purpose of correction. You guys are welcome to go sort those ethical conversations out later. But we all understand the picture now, right? Hey, I want you to know you're not as strong as that animal, so be careful. But he's looking right at Saul in the glorious lens of, of eternity. And he's peering into this, this fragile moment of, of the here and now. And he's like, it's hard for you to resist this bit of shepherding I'm offering. Not, is it? He says, it is. The shepherd wins with the shepherd's wise and Jesus is the great shepherd, amen? He just leans in and he tells him who he is and he says, you're having a, a, a bit of trouble now because I've got the correction in my hand. A couple of different times in scripture, we see this, this bit of instruction that's offered. You see the staff of, of, of Moses or the one that ends up in the Ark of the Covenant. A picture of God's Correction. I, I liken it to what I see here, but he goes on and says in verse number six, Saul's response. So he trembling and astonished said, now I want you to think about this. Jesus just said, I'm Jesus. And a few minutes ago, Saul was like, let's round up all the Jesus followers. And the stark contrast to what you're about to see is phenomenal. He said, trembling and astonished. For the second time, he declares him as Lord, by the way. Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, remember I told you that in Acts chapter 1, that there's a question. Will you, at this time, establish your kingdom? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's not for you to know that, but I have a job for you to do. You're not asking the right question. And then when you get to Acts chapter 8, it's like, hey, once again, I have a job for you to do. And it's like you're not asking the right question. But then you get to chapter 9, and the person who's against Jesus, he asks the right question immediately. 
What do you want me to do? And I think that if we started our day with Jesus with, what do you want me to do? And our day would be different, wouldn't it? Amen. Point number three, there is a right question we all should be asking. What do you want me to do? Oftentimes we run to Jesus and we're like, can you, will you, why haven't you? Instead it's, what would you like me to do today? It just feels like this is a repeating theme in these sermons. Different texts, same advice. One does not approach the king and say, king, do this or that for me. One approaches the king and says, what would you have me do? He is recognizing the powerful authority of Jesus, whether he's submitted his soul completely yet or not. We, we see this picture, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told. And the next line ought to just crush you. Not what you should do. Not here are some options, but what you must do. The imperative voice is undeniable. Isn't it fantastic that in Acts chapter 1 that the Lord God, through the resurrected Jesus, is saying, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he incorporates in chapter 9 one of the biggest pieces of opposition that he knows that's on the playing board into the fold and says to the ends of the earth to him as well. Isn't it amazing that that's what Saul is going to be about? He's going to be about getting to the ends of the earth. He's going to be about fulfilling that initial call to the apostles. That it seems like that if you really track this story and this narrative that God has a plan and that Jesus is executing the instructions to the followers and that he is seeing between the, the, the midst of people who want to comply and the midst of the people who don't want to comply, he's, he is orchestrating his plan to perfection. And if you want to be a part of his plan, then you need to learn to ask questions like, Lord, what do you want me to do? Instead, what we do is we say, and we see people have success in all these different capacities and ways in the world, and we want to do just like them. And then we say, Lord, bless us as we do just like other people. Instead of saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? There's a difference, by the way. Mirroring the success of other people is not necessarily what we've been asked to do. We've been asked to ask the Lord when we wake in the morning, what would you have me do today? And there's this picture. And he tells him, arise and go into the city and you will be told. And here's this patience piece again that kind of just seems to be thematic and floating around all these verses. He says, go there and you will be told. Most of us are crying out and we're throwing up our hands and we say, but we want to know right now what you want us to do. We need to know today. We're praying and we're waiting for an answer and we're really frustrated that you haven't answered us today. So as a result, we're going to revolt by living a little selfishly and a little sinfully until you tell us what you want. We don't want to be patient and wait. We're just going to do what we want to do. But he says, no, arise, go to the city and wait. You'll be told when you get there. The bumpy passages that come after this, which we're going to cover in a couple of weeks, I'll take a break from Mother's Day, I promise. We're going to see what happens when it gets to the next place. But he's in the midst of an entourage. Point number four, by the way, is instruction is given, is given excuse me, to listening ears. If your ears are listening, you'd be shocked at how much God will instruct you. 
You know, one of the greatest flaws in most of us in our prayer life is, is that we think we have to fill our prayer time with our words. But if it's truly a conversation between you and the Almighty, just, I just challenge you, just dare you. Spend a few of those minutes in silence. At first, you're going to have a hard time because you're going to think about all the to-do lists. You're going to think about all the things that are bothering you. You're going to think about everything else. But just intentionally, when you pray to God, what would you have me do? And then stop and wait. 15 seconds, 30 seconds, an hour. You're like, you jumped from 30 seconds to an hour. You don't get to an hour unless you make some incremental changes, in my opinion. But what I will say is, is that we don't listen very well when we pray. He's asking a question. And if we want instruction, sometimes silence is the next thing. Because God, who wants us to have manners, has manners. And sometimes he's just waiting on us to shut up. I would say look at your neighbor and tell them to shut up, but I don't think it would be so good in some households. Don't do that, please. Please don't do that. His entourage, though, immediately, verse number 7, and to the, to the end of the verses, says, And the men journeyed with him stood speechless. This is the right posture of people who are watching life change. Some of the people that I counted as my dearest circle of friends and close people were forever speechless when I started man, changing my music and changing my language and changing my life. When, when I say when I did it, when God did it to me, all of a sudden I started complying with what Jesus wanted and the people around me, they would just look at me like I was a lunatic. But I was okay with that. Because I wanted the approval of my king a lot more than I wanted the approval of my friends. Amen. It says here, and it's really interesting if you study this from the testimony of Paul later in the text that the New Testament, everything concerning this moment in Paul's life or Saul's life, there's some debate about what has actually transpired amongst the people that are with him. It says hearing a voice, which you will find out whenever you read later in the letters, that, that they couldn't discern what was being said. It says, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. Now, I want you to see something here. You know, something that happens in Scripture oftentimes, and I think it's neglected, that for those of us that are being drawn into the service of the king and not in opposition to him anymore, he takes us from a position of inability to a position of ability. But that being said, sometimes the limitation he puts on us is for our, our benefit. He's not able to see, and that's part of the next message in the series. But the problem is, is not that he couldn't see with his eyes, is that he started to see with his heart. He's hearing Jesus. Do you hear Jesus today? Are you asking him what you should do? Are you listening when you ask? There's a picture here. He can't see with his eyes, but man, he can clearly, clearly see something right here. It says, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Remember, he was headed to Damascus to arrest Christians. He's not headed to Damascus to arrest Christians anymore. I think the great question for most people is once they begin to follow Jesus is, well, I was going to do X, Y, and Z, but I'm not going to do that anymore. What should I do now? Listen to Jesus. He'll tell you what to do. It says he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. And this ought to mess you up from your normal routine, shouldn't it? 
it, when I was a boy, and when I, I realized that, that there was something spiritual that needed to occur in, in life, and I saw my sister making a decision, I, I, I parroted every word she said. I, I told the Sunday school teacher at the time, you know, everything she wanted to hear, and they thought that I had made a legitimate decision too. And I was pretty pleased to make everybody else happy. And what happened is, is they ushered us forward and they presented us to church and then they baptized us a little bit later. And everybody asked me, aren't you so happy that this has happened to you? And I was like, man, I'm so happy that you're happy. It wasn't until some time later that I began to realize that I had no real relationship with who Jesus was. And when I cried out to him from my heart for the right reasons, that I began to ask him to save me, that all of a sudden it did mess up everything. And it was like this, where it's like nothing was the same, not for the next several days and not for the rest of my life. Well, this morning, you know, as we begin to draw this to a conclusion, I'm going to talk to you about a man by the name of Alfred C. Hobbs. Um, there's a picture. You can click to the next slide and you can find it, I think. Alfred C. Hobbs shocked the, the, the British world because he was, he was taking on a challenge. You know, sometimes people set, they set a, a, what they believe is an unthinkable task that can't be possibly accomplished. As soon as somebody does that, somebody will test that theory and they will try to break the thing. Right? Well, there's this lock that was created. It's called the detector. And the whole premise behind this lock is, is that if you try to burgle it, if you try to pick the lock and you adjust the, the pins too high, then it'll, it'll vice shut. That you'll know that it has been tried to be tampered with when you take the actual key to open it. You won't be able to use that key anymore. You'll have to bring it a regulator key to come in and reset the lock so that you can use your actual key. But he, wanting to have this challenge, decides that he's going to set to it. So there's a grand invitation, and people come to watch him doing this. And he pulls out a series of tools, which if you read the article that I read, you'll see that they do not describe them. And in the article, it's kind of cheeky because they're like, we're not going to tell you what the tools look like because we don't want you to know how to do this. He spends 25 minutes and he opens the lock. He doesn't set off the mechanism to slam it closed. He gets in. They reset the lock and they say, do it again. This time, not 25 minutes, but seven minutes later, he's in. And the world is astonished because this is considered to be unpickable. The Apostle Paul was much like this lock. When his name was Saul, he had detection in place. He had the law of his tradition and his religion in place to slam shut on his heart as soon as somebody tried to needle down into him and say something should be different. And, and like anybody in this room knows that most of us had those thoughts about all the reasons why this wasn't something we should believe. But when Jesus sets in, he can navigate your heart and unlock you in a way that no one else can. And with a simple invitation, he can invite you to be his follower forever and change your life. The problem is, is we think, like Saul, we've got all the answers to all the things, but if you start listening to Jesus, he'll ask you, why are you resisting? And then he'll say that he's Jesus, and you know it's real, because you hear it and hear it first. We're going to have an invitation, and if you want to come and meet Jesus today, I'm going to invite you to come. If you want to talk to me after, that's fine, but hesitate not. Come quickly. Would you stand?
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your house. An opportunity to see lives change in the scripture and to know that lives are, are always possible to be changed. Lord, in our very community, that if we would look upon the surface and, the, and on the, the face of people, we would say of them, they're beyond it. But you know, Lord, that that's not true. Lord, there might be even some here today that have been resisting the truth of this gospel, but today they have heard you. I pray, Lord, that their heart would be like a lock that is not unpickable indeed, but is, is easily navigated by you. That you're working on each and every one of us to unlock us in such a way that the world will be astonished when we are fully yours. I pray for those that are present today, Lord, and those that will see this online, Lord, that they would know that you are an unlocker of hearts and that there is, a, there is a place in each and every one of us where we might say we opposed you, but you know everything about us and none of us are beyond your reach. I pray today that we would have courage to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.